Welcome to Radio Physics, a collaboration with the Aspen Center for Physics, KDNK Community Radio in Carbondale, and advanced physics students from Roaring Fork Valley High Schools. The students spend a week working at the center during the summer and get to talk one-on-one to some of the distinguished physicists who are here. I'm Patty Fox, and I'm hosting today's program, which was recorded during the teen summer program at the Aspen Center for Physics. Chloe Bretman, who's a former gopher and graduate of Aspen High School, will interview Jacob Borgeli, a theoretical physicist at the Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen. Jacob completed his PhD in 2011 at Princeton University, after which he spent three years at Harvard University as a junior fellow in the Harvard Society of Fellows. The primary focus of his research has been quantum field theory, which is the development of new tools for connecting theory to experiment and explaining why the predictions we make using quantum theory are so often, so surprisingly, shockingly simple in form. I'm going to quote Jacob now from an interview which he did when speaking to Kendall College of Art and Design of Ferris State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I've always had a warm spot in my heart for research. I really believe that things like quantum mechanics that people think are scary and complicated are explainable to the public at large. It's a set of knowledge that as a society we should be more proud of, and it should be part of cultural awareness. On a very practical level, every grant application in science requires a statement about how you're going to do public outreach and communicate your ideas to the public when there's sincere, genuine interest from other disciplines that want to help communicate, that's supported on almost every level. And it was a fabulous talk that he gave then at the Arts and Design um, School. And um, now we're going to hold Jacob's feet to the fire, that he is going to describe his work so that the society at large can understand it and appreciate it. Thank you, Patty. So um, I guess we can just start with um, a really easy one. When did you first become interested in physics and then specifically particle physics? I kind of have a surprising answer to this question because I didn't actually take physics until undergraduate uh, at the university. I, in high school, I was very, let's say I was good at math and I really liked science. Um, and I was involved in amateur astronomy and used to give weekly lectures at uh, the local planetarium. And it was an organic chemistry professor of of mine who told me that if I was good at math and liked science, then I should learn something about physics. So he pointed me towards the Feynman lectures on physics, which I read before starting undergrad. So when I got to college, I took physics 101, 102, and then quantum field theory. Um, <laughs> so I took quantum field theory in my second year. And the summer before that, I had the opportunity to be a summer student at CERN at the Particle Physics Laboratory in Geneva, working on the ATLAS experiment, one of the, the two big experiments 
that are part of the Large Hadron Collider that helped discover the Higgs boson a few years ago. And as a summer student there, I got exposed to many particle physicists and got to sit in lectures that I didn't understand at all, that I was very excited about. <laughs> and by the time I returned to school in the fall, I knew that I wanted to be a physicist. And I dropped out of the College of Engineering, enrolled at physics full-time, and started at quantum field theory and kind of haven't looked back since. Maybe just for the listeners, can you explain a little bit about what is the study of particle physics? Sure. So most people know that um, matter is made of atoms, and atoms have constituent parts, um, electrons, neutrons, protons. And inside the neutrons and protons are other particles. And the way we describe um, the fundamental laws of nature these days is in terms of particles. For the most part, sometimes gravity might be uh, better described as a field. But for the most part, we think of um, experiments as as starting from one state, some configuration of, of matter, and evolving into some other state. And as I think most people know these days, um, quantum mechanics forbids us from making exact predictions for experiments, but we are allowed to predict exactly the probabilities of different outcomes of experiments. And so the job of a particle physicist is to, using the laws of the, the standard model of particle physics and, um, well, whether it's for real particles for real experiments or maybe imaginary ones or, or effective ones that you create in the laboratory, is, uh, the job of a particle physicist is to make those predictions, um, what the probability of different outcomes are given some initial states. So building on that, can you talk a little bit about what you're working on right now in the field of particle physics? I study the machinery. I like to say that I study force equals mass times acceleration more than I care about any particular force or any particular masses. And so the subject of quantum field theory is not actually a theory itself. It's really the quantum mechanical generalization of force equals mass times acceleration. So as most people learned in high school, except for me, I guess, <laughs> um, Newton told us that if, that if you knew where things were and you knew their masses and you knew all the forces, you could predict what happens in the future. And this gets modified in a few ways in quantum field theory, but the primary thing is that we don't get to predict the future, we get to predict these probabilities. And so as most people uh, know, the Newton's description of force equals mass times acceleration led to calculus, to add up all the little forces and predict the future. And quantum field theory is really more analogous to calculus than it is to a particular law of nature. It's a framework that describes uh, the real world. It also describes imaginary worlds and effective ones, approximate descriptions. It describe, people use it to describe the stock market, um, you know, for better for, or for, <laughs> for ill. And in all these cases, the goal, the, the use of quantum field theory is to make these probabilistic predictions for experiment. And what motivates me personally is that um, it turns out that quantum field theory is very hard. Um, I guess people won't be very surprised by that. Actually, I think understanding it is not that hard, but converting the conceptual ideas, which I think anybody can really understand, 
into numbers for experiments requires a lot of advanced mathematics. And, and it's not uncommon for serious predictions that need to be made for experiments like at the Large, Large Hadron Collider for these predictions to take teams of people years using supercomputers to make these predictions that you need to use to discover particles like the Higgs boson. And what motivates me is that every time somebody has ever done this, they've spent years calculating something very difficult for some experiment, the answer itself mocks us. I mean, the, the prediction that we make is shockingly simple. And a good example of this is uh, one Richard Feynman, his Nobel Prize, together with Schwinger and Tomonaga. And it is still a calculation, it's a prediction that is in every quantum field theory course in the, in the world. Usually it's a week-long homework assignment. And it's to calculate something scary called the gyromagnetic ratio. It's the ratio of the electric to magnetic charge of the, uh, 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 of, or sorry, the, yeah, of the electron. And this is something that if you imagine an electron to be a little ball that's spun around, you can calculate using classical physics, using Newton's laws, that this ratio should be one in the appropriate conventions. And yet it was calculated, people, or, sorry, people measured it in the, I think in the early 1940s, to be closer to two. Uh, maybe actually that was in the 20s. Um, and actually the, cal the prediction that it should be two instead of one is part of the reason why Paul Dirac got his Nobel Prize. But people knew this was just the first approximation to, uh, you know, that, that, that it really shouldn't be exactly two. It should be two plus something. And the problem was is that from quantum mechanics in the 1920s, no matter how people tried calculating it, the two plus something turned into two plus infinity. And um, Pauli, Wolfgang Pauli, a famous physicist, famously remarked that just because something's infinite doesn't mean it's zero. Um, well, you know, to cut a very long and very interesting story short, um, these three physicists, Feynman, Schwinger, and Tomonaga, took kind of a radically conservative point of view. Um, in contrast to Pauli and all of his contemporaries, they thought that quantum mechanics was understood correctly. And they thought that if they just did it really carefully, they really followed their nose and made this prediction, they would, you know, they would, they would get some number. And in the appropriate units, the correction is, well, it's, it's one times the charge of the electron divided by pi. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now this is, Schwinger was so proud of this that he put it on his tombstone. <laughs> um, and of course it won these people the Nobel Prize. And this has now been calculated several orders higher. And this first correction, the one that got them the Nobel Prize, is usually a week-long homework assignment where the students will write three or four pages of algebra, canceling terms, you know, following the textbook methods. And at the end of, of three or four pages of algebra, you get to an integral that you don't know how to do and that you put on the computer and the computer doesn't know how to do it either. Even today, even still today, math, no, computers won't know how to do it. And then you think about it some more and you learn some clever tricks and eventually you, you, you massage the integral into something and that, and that integral turns out to be one. Okay. And this week of algebra um, 
is just to calculate this number one. The charge divided by pi part of it had to be there. So um, all the work is calculating one. And it's, this has now been calculated to much higher orders. And every single time, the effort involved in making this prediction so vastly exceed, um, uh, seems unjustified when you, you know, surely you could have calculated one more efficiently. And it's not just about making these predictions more efficiently. I think that, as this example illustrates, if you're working so hard to calculate something so simple, you're probably doing something a little wrong. And that's what I work on, is, is reformulating the basic textbook methods. You know, not to change quantum field theory. I think the description we teach students is correct. Um, it's just cumbersome, and it makes it and it hides all this beautiful simplicity that, you know, leaves us with a feeling that we don't really understand what, uh, how the laws, or what they're trying to tell us. So you're really looking for beauty. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> for I the simplest, so. simple, not simplistic, but for the underlying mm -hmm. beauty of how things really fit together. Absolutely. I think uh, there's a lot of connection between the, what motivates physicists and what motivates artists and um, poets, musicians. Mm -hmm. um, just that ours is a little bit harder to uh, read. <laughs> <laughs> and talk about, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> so kind of a quick follow-up to that. Like, What is the importance of making physics, and especially like higher-level physics, accessible at, a, at an easier level? Like, What does that do for the field as, the field as a whole? I mean, not in terms of what it does for the field, but I think the knowledge that we have um, about how the world works is part of our cultural heritage. And it's not as, you know, it's funny, the, the popular books on, in science are often about speculative subjects or, you know, things at the cutting edge, because that's, it's always kind of exciting. But it's also about the things that we, that might be wrong, that might be, you know, uh, might disappear in a few years. But the, the degree of, of uh, the fraction of the laws of nature that we do understand is astounding. And I don't think it's as widely appreciated as, uh, as it could be. You know, we really do understand how electrons work. And it might be hard to make a prediction for some experiment, but, but we really can. In this particular case of this uh, gyromagnetic ratio for the electron has been computed, I think, to 14 decimal places. And all of them have been matched to experiment. I mean, this really is the way the world works. Mm -hmm. And this is, um, you know, I think most students going through school learn about, you know, Newton's laws and how we can, and people are no longer surprised that we can calculate when a solar eclipse is going to happen. But we really understand how to make those kinds of, I mean, we understand the things about the, about the universe that we don't understand is very subtle and very small. We really understand a vast amount. And it's... I think it's important to society to have to have a better appreciation of that part of our heritage. So I wanted to kind of go back to something that you had mentioned earlier um, about you had said that some physicists work with ex you know in an experimental kind of way, and then lots of others spend a lot of time working on models and doing things that perhaps model reality but don't actually depict reality. Mm -hmm. And so, what is the important the importance of mathematical formulas and 
um, particles that don't actually exist in reality? What do they do for our understanding? Sure. So it's it's not a, actually all that different from just from studying force equals mass times acceleration in the abstract. You know, Newton told us that rule, and he gave us exactly one force, which was gravity. You know, not much of the world, you know, you know, as how balls bounce into each other is not determined by gravity. And so shortly after Newton and some in Newton's work, there's a, you know, there are all these kinds of approximate descriptions about how forces work. And they're not as universal as gravity. Um, and in many cases, some of the, you know, the models that I study, for example, are more in that kind of spirit. They're, they could be viewed as an approximate uh, thing for something real or maybe just a toy model to think about. So because quantum field theory is so hard and because we're so surprised by the kinds of predictions it makes, it's important to have a lot of the, the advances in the last 20 years have been led by cutting edge, by really hard calculations. So the way this works is somebody, you know, maybe it's motivated by experiments, maybe it's just motivated by theory, but um, somebody computes something that was recently viewed as completely impossible, and they break their backs doing it. And then when they, usually they're so tired at the end that they just publish it uh, as is, and it's typical to find predictions for experiment real or imagined as you know 20 pages of an appendix <laughs> and then somebody else sometimes the same people will then within a few months stare at that same formula and realize that it collapses to one line um, <laughs> and it turns out that the standard model which is probably the most you know the the way that electrons interact and and uh, strong nuclear force there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of there's a lot of things in it so it's often easier to calculate, to make these hard calculations in an easier theory. Um, but the goal, of course, is to study, you know, when I, is to study this general machinery of how to go from any theory to predictions for that theory. And so, so long as we're thinking about it that way, um, the lessons we learn, even in these simple toy models, apply to every other. They, they might not let us uh, um, make every prediction in the standard model, but it might uh, help us with important parts. And it should, you know, the, the goal is to really understand the, the foundations for any conceivable quantum theory. So kind of on the note of models and theories, um, could you maybe talk a little bit about, you can explain what it is and sort of how it's changing, um, the Feynman diagram, which was sort of one of the first of its kind, I think, and yeah. how um, in quantum mechanics and field theory today that it's there are sort of new and emerging methods that sort of change what the Feynman diagrams, or differently do what Feynman's diagrams also do. Sure. Um, so this is better with a blackboard or something, but the basic idea of Feynman diagrams is very simple. Um, and if the experts will forgive me, roughly speaking, Feynman taught us that the probability for the, any experiment, if you imagine starting with some states and what happens later, is roughly an average over all the, the probabilities of ways that could have happened, this experiment could have proceeded. And so if you want to study, say, how two electrons bounce off each other, the simplest thing that could have happened is nothing. They didn't, they just 
blew right by each other, didn't see each other at all. And that's a Feynman diagram. You draw a picture of uh, like a time, you, you draw lines to indicate that, these, that, these, uh, that an electron existed somewhere and that as time evolved, it existed somewhere and, and you get a line from this. And then most qu quantum field theories today are described in terms of elementary things that could have happened. And um, the way electrons interact with each other is actually described by a very simple quantum field theory that Feynman helped to develop called quantum electrodynamics, very scary sounding picture. But the basic principle of quantum electrodynamics is that there's only one thing that can happen, which is that an electron can emit a photon, a particle called a photon. And, um, and what this looks like in terms of a diagram is that you have one particle and then suddenly at some moment in time there are two particles. There's the electron and a photon. So you have a one line breaking into two. It can also happen in the reverse direction, so an electron can absorb a photon. And believe it or not, that one basic operation generates everything we know about electrons, <laughs> at least in a universe without quarks and things. Um, <laughs> And so, the, so what happens is you imagine um, how, say, two electrons could scatter. The first thing is that they do nothing. The next simplest thing that could have happened is maybe one of the electrons emitted a photon and then the other one ab absorbed it. And it turns out that the more complicated the story, the more complicated the scenario, the less relevant it is for the simple reason, you know, it's like when you're uh, you know, lying to your parents or something. If you if you add more details, it makes it easier for them to see that it's, you know, the probability goes down. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> if you're gonna get away with this. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you always start with the simplest things, and you, which is nothing, and then you draw then the next simplest thing, and you keep going. And, um, and then if you go to graduate school and take a lot of mathematics, you can learn how to take those pictures and get numbers out for experimentalists. But the basic pictures is what every physicist has in their head. Now, you asked about how this relates to, to, to the newer things. And there are a few, despite the, the compelling nature of this picture, that you basically just draw every conceivable way that you know, two electrons could start and two electrons could, be, could end, the pictures themselves turn into pretty complicated formulas. But worse than just being complicated formulas, they depend on things that no experimentalists could ever see. Um, they depend on theoretical, theoretical... Uh, uh, they're called virtual particles, that's what I was reading They're about. virtual particles. They're, so the, all the particles going on inside these pictures, um, it's kind of an interesting little sleight of hand, but um, um, it's, uh, they're, they're not real, they're called virtual, um, meaning that an experimentalist isn't allowed to see them. <laughs> okay, they're, they're actually <laughs> forbidden from being real. Um, and it's, it's kind of paradoxical that actually all of this machinery that we have to make these predictions involves taking real particles and then drawing pictures in terms of fake ones and adding up all these pictures of fake particles and then getting predictions for real ones. And it's so second nature to most physicists that we don't even think about it really anymore, that, that that's funny that we <laughs> have all these fake things. Until you actually try to calculate things, because it gets—it's actually a real burden. Um, the fact that they're virtual um, forces you to carry around uh, indices, and um, there are variables that that you that are needed in this description that are utterly irrelevant to the final calculation. 
And I, I sometimes describe this as theoretical baggage um, because it's something that's forced on us from the toolbox that no one cares about, that, that cannot affect a physical prediction. In fact, physicists have become, there are famous examples of famous physicists who have worked very hard to prove that these fake things that theorists introduce won't, won't affect our predictions. You know, it's very hard to prove that sometimes. Um, <laughs> And one of the biggest insights is that you don't need the virtual particles. That there is actually a way to describe these predict, to make these predictions without ever referring to something that is unobservable. And um, the basic motivation for this goes back to the 1960s, but it really kind of took off in the early 2000s. And, you know, it seems, you know, it's, it's one of these funny things because if I tell a physicist that I want to calculate a prediction for experiment using only real things, they'll think I'm crazy. And if I told a, a, somebody who's not a physicist that I wanted to calculate something in terms of real things, they would think, isn't that obvious? You know? <laughs> um, but you know, from, a phys from the way we teach students, the way we think about it, it's actually, it seems like quite a burden to avoid reference to these theoretical ideas. But it turns out that if you just follow your nose, you get, you can make every prediction that you could have made the other way, and it turns out a lot easier and a lot, and the, the, the predictions themselves tend to be packaged in a better way. And that's about as much time as we have, but I think, Jacob, you, you did pretty well with explaining things so that we could understand as a society what's going on in physics. So thank you um, to Jacob Borjali from the Niels Bohr Institute in Copenhagen and Chloe Bretman, uh, who is going it alone today from Aspen High School, where she has graduated and is on her way to the University of Chicago. Congratulations. Thank you. Tune in to Radio Physics on the fourth Tuesday of every month at 4.30 for more information about our Gopher program and events at the center. Also, please visit the Aspen Center for Physics website at aspenphys.org or give me a call. Thank you. <laughs>